0: Amen. Good morning. We're in James 2. It's not funny. Don't laugh. Just kidding. (laughs) We made it. (laughs) I just wanted to thank you guys quickly for your generosity. Um, There's some things... You know, sometimes the church, we're able to help people and we can't necessarily talk to everybody about it because there's their private issues. There's just some things this week that we were able to bless and care for people in a way that we'll never be able to necessarily display publicly. But I just wanted to thank you for your generosity, for your faithfulness to give, because um, we're really, the church has been able to really bless some people, and um, God's been so good to us. Amen. So, Lord, in Jesus' holy name, we just profess this morning, we love this word. We love this scripture. It's bread to us. We love your presence, Lord. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. Lord, would you speak to us today? Would you mold us and shape us today unto the glory of Jesus? And it's in your precious name that we pray all the saints say amen. 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 Poor baby. That's what my house sounds like all the time. While we're talking about it, last night we were working in, we were working at the Bluffton campus and, uh, my kids were there running around and Seth said, it sounds like there's, there's like a kids camp or something happening here. I said, no, that's just my children. That's actually what my house sounds like. Well, as we turn to James 2, I know we've talked about this some before, but it was just impossible for me to look at our text to not think of Um, William Seymour, who was the leader of the Azusa Street Revival. Seymour was born in 1870-ish to um, emancipated slaves. And they moved north um, to try to build a life. And Seymour, in his young years, he was just a boy, uh, caught smallpox and lost his right eye. And so he had a glass eye for the entirety of his life he felt the call of God on his life, and so he decided that um, he would go to Bible school, and he went to Charles Parham's school. Charles Parham led in Topeka, Kansas for a season and uh, was influential. And But when Seymour goes to Parham's Bible school, you've probably heard this before, he was made to sit in the hallway and listen because um, of segregation laws. He wasn't allowed to sit in the classroom. He had to sit in the hallway. He, he got a call for a pastorate in Los Angeles uh, he had preached in Los Angeles once and, uh, a church called him, a holiness church called him to be the pastor. And he, uh, he was so excited. He said, they said he didn't even really pray about it. He just said, this is the Lord. I'm going. Uh, so he went to Los Angeles his first Sunday. He preached a message on the power of God's spirit in Acts chapter two and just told the church that they should pray with him, that they had the same kind of experience that God's power would be poured out on the church there in Los Angeles. Well, he returned to preach the next service, and they had locked him out. His message was so controversial that he was officially fired from his first pastorate. Um, but with kind of a great humility and zeal, he just kept praying anyway. And he essentially said, anybody wants to pray with me for God's power on the church, I'll be praying. And God's power was poured out on him and on the meetings. And Azusa Street literally changed the landscape Of the nations, not just our nation, definitely our nation, but of the nations. And all of the Pentecostal charismatic movements have their roots in Los Angeles, uh, when a, when a half blind son of slaves led a prayer movement. And from around the world, people were coming to, to participate. And the Pentecostal charismatic movement is the quickest growing, the, the fastest, um, evangelism that the world has ever seen around the nation. So from Azusa Street, there was birth a missions movement that hasn't stopped. It's still the quickest uh, move around the world. But Seymour, again, being a black man leading a, a movement of, of, of multiple ethnicities, he caught a lot, a, a lot of flack. Um, the Los Angeles Times, can you imagine them writing this today? The Los Angeles Times wrote that, that William Seymour's meetings were, quote, a disgraceful intermingling of the races. There were many leaders, and you can find articles, where they talked about William Seymour as being, um, they, they mocked his eye. Um, so having a glass eye, the physical appearance, you know, there's, it didn't quite sit right sometimes. And they mocked his dress and his, and his hair. They called him unkempt and slothful, which was anyone who knew Seymour would say that that was like slander at its finest. That Seymour, you can find pictures of him online, like was always in a suit and well-dressed and was a very um, put-together man. And so they tried to paint him as this wild, sloppy, um, unarticulate man, and he just wasn't. Um, all that to say, all that to say, there are times when you talk about C.S. Lewis as not being particularly well-dressed um, even if he was not well dressed, if the man knew God in prayer, who cares? Um, but but there was a cultural rejection of Seymour on the basis primarily of his skin color, secondarily of his doctrine and uh, his leadership. Even Charles Parham, who's who's championed as a great leader in the Pentecostal movement, again led in Topeka. At one point, moves into Los Angeles and starts his own meetings. Um, because he didn't like the way that Seymour was leading and he tried to essentially steal the momentum away from Seymour and Parham's meetings fell apart really quickly. Well, the Pentecostal movement, again, we want to be honest with history, um, and, and not just paint everything with this kind of heroic light. But, but I, be, I think, and I'm thankful, the Pentecostal movement largely, uh, began to break the back of segregation within the people of God. But as it lost steam, there became some doctrinal fights. The Pentecostal movement in the early years um, did begin to return to segregated congregations where there were white churches and black churches. And Seymour, although he birthed in prayer and a lot of fasting, he fasted a lot, this new movement uh, would say in his later years that he thought the destruction of it was still prejudice and racism, um, on both sides, the church is totally fragmented again. And he said this. This was the quote that I'm trying to get to in all of this. He said this uh towards the end of his life. I think he died in 1922. He said, um, The Pentecostal power, when you sum it all up, is more of God's love. If it does not bring more love, it's simply counterfeit. He was saying that when God's spirit really moves on a people, all of their prejudices and all of their um, their kind of selfish desire for status totally washes to the wayside. If the people really know God's power, they will be moved to, to, to the love of the spirit for one another to serve all the boundaries. When you really get a hold of the doctrine of Jesus' blood, that it purchases the nation's, and it redeems a new creation. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that those in Christ are one new man, Jew and Gentile alike. That means Asian, Hispanic, they're one new man in Jesus. When you really get a hold of that, prejudice must bow. It must bow. And this is where James is going to take us today. I wanted to say this, that just, just so you know me, okay, um, there, in, in popular thought, in what you would call uh, the study of churches, ecclesiology, sometimes there's this talk about emissiology. Uh, there's this talk, uh, and it really is just an extension of, sorry for all the ologies, it's an extension of sociology coming into evangelism. There's this talk about regions and what kind of man should pastor a church in particular regions and so, for instance, they'll, like, if they were going to study Hilton Head, and I've had people say this to me, um, a church on Hilton Head whose demographic is older, whose demographic, uh, I, I don't know, the, I don't have the demographics in front of me, but the demographics are, um, majority white, second, I think the second is Hispanic, then African American. The demographic being majority white, then a church on Hilton Head should probably be pastored by A white man in his sixties is kind of the way that the thinking goes, Um, and I just want to say, a church on Hilton Head should probably be pastored by a man anointed of God's spirit and faithful to the Word. Um, I and I mean this with I mean this with my gut. Um, If God brings a man from the revivals of Brazil to lead this church one day or to lead a church plant in this area one day, and he's faithful to the word of God, I will gladly call him pastor. If God leads us, an African-American man who loves this word and is anointed of the spirit and serves the flock, I will gladly call him pastor. If God brings a man from China who's prayed and fasted like Watchman Nee, you know, this kind of pray, oh, who I would gladly call him pastor. God, bring me whatever color pastor you want, just don't bring me a dead one and i'm thankful that uh, not i'm thankful that our elders in a season they were looking for a pastor saw a, again i was maybe 20 i was think i was still 26 when i started doing interviews 27 and um not not wearing a suit and doing all the things that 27 year olds do and our elders saying, there's anointing here. I think there's a call here and being willing to step out. Um, prejudice. Imagine this. Imagine this now. If we could go back and imagine yourself with a 30-year-old in Los Angeles in 1905. Can you imagine allowing the prejudice of culture to talk you out of stepping into a Zuzu Street meeting? The stories talk about there was a point where where literally uh and you could find this fire rest above the church there are stories of the glory of God being so tangible in the room like a cloud and kids trying to catch it with jars crazy healings like like God doing such supernatural powerful things and how many people missed it because of their cultural prejudice that's that's a shame and if, we, if we're not careful will allow the same kind of things, cultural ideas, cultural prejudices, to thrust us towards postures where we actually miss what God's doing. And and for me, that's a shame. I, I, I want God's power in my life. And whoever God sees, whatever vessel God sees fit to use by God, we better welcome it. Let me read you the text, and I'm, I want to just try to unpack what James is getting at here uh, with his congregation, with the church at Jerusalem, and then we'll unravel how, that, how these themes could be applicable to us. Is that okay so far? James 2, 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, let's just take roughly three hours that 's a joke <laughs> Give me five minutes or so to try to unpack what 's happening culturally in first century Rome that may help us a bit to grasp what 's going on in the text. We obviously we need to constantly remind ourselves that our American experience is a historical anomaly, um, and so the mobility, economic mobility of uh, the American experience is beautiful, um, but it's crazy rare. And we, we should be really thankful for it. By economic mobility, I mean the ability to be born. Um, gosh, sorry, I'm thinking of Tim Scott's. I saw an ad from Tim Scott <laughs> where he talks about, uh, I think his grandfather raised him, was a cotton picker, and then he's in Congress and trying to paint the idea that... Um, there's mobility in our nation. That kind of, you can be born poor and if the gifts and graces are there, you can work hard, handle your money well, steward your money well, and find yourself prosperous. That's a beautiful thing that is unique to our historical setting. So we were talking about first century Rome. They're very much living within the context of classes, tight classes that are not easily if at all, breakable. And so, um, not to use technical terms, but to break it down, in, in Roman culture, there was what we would kind of call, the the, the elitist class was what we would kind of call old money. Um, there were people who were born wealthy and prestigious, would always be wealthy and prestigious. Um, they were honored. They had certain legal uh rights that others didn't have in Rome I know this is strange but it does help to try to understand in Rome the the chief desire of a roman man was honor the chief desire of an american man is probably comfort and so um for for romans the 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 thing to desire with all of your life was that you would be remembered and honored culturally. And so um, the the highest classes of Romans, they were wealthy. Sometimes um sometimes even people in this class could have made financial poor decisions and lost wealth, yet still they're honored because of their name. Um, they were wealthy, they were protected, they would do things like run for offices so running for an office like a political position in a town you would have to be of a certain class to even run for the office and then once you were in the office like these individuals were expected to pave the roads to build governmental buildings or temples out of their own pocket and so they were financially providing for public projects Willfully, no one. I'm not paying for your streets. I'll pay my taxes. You pay your taxes. I am not building a road out of my own pocket. Okay, um, but they were willfully paying for public projects because to do so would be to earn honor, would be to establish their name as 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 being dignified. Now, what we know is like something like less than one percent of Romans were in that top top tier, and well over ninety percent of individuals in the Roman Empire were were in the class you would call poor. So again, there was no such thing as a middle class, and there was no such thing as mobility. There was really poor people, which would be the majority, a very tip-top that you had to be born into, and then there was an upper class that that were kind of new money. Um, So when James is talking to the church, he's not talking to the church in the way that we would think of ourselves positioned in our socioeconomic class. He's talking to people who are stuck in very rigid boxes. Does this make sense so far? Now, so when you think of this way, Roman culture again, the Roman Empire, honor is chief, right? Like the glory of dying in battle. We, we honor our fallen soldiers, those who die in battle, but are, no one really wants to die in battle, right? But in the Roman world, that was kind of the, the, the chief end, was to die in battle, this glory. Glory was the desire. Again, we, 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 our end desire would be um, like a private island in the Bahamas, right? With a, maybe a yacht. Um, in this context, now imagine... The elite of society coming into the congregation and the congregation saying to the elite, you sit at the head of the table while the common people come in and you say to the common poor man, you sit down here at the ground. What's happening, and this is actually really interesting and worth pondering, what's happening is they're allowing Roman culture to be carried into the congregation of the, the kingdom. It it In some instances, to say to the rich man who walks into the church, sit at the table, and to say to the poor man, sit on the ground, in some instances, that might not even be offensive to the poor man. He sat on the ground his whole life. In every public meeting or public setting, this is the way that they sat. The honored, dignified man sits at the head, The poor man sits on the ground. That's normal, not even offensive. Yet James is riled up that the kingdom of God, the culture of the kingdom would ever be influenced by what happens in Roman public meetings. In other words, he's saying, when you step into the congregation of the saints, we don't act like they act out there. And the the great sin, That the church is operating here, he's he's very clear to call it sin, is that they are allowing culture to dictate what happens in the church of Jesus rather than carrying the, the kingdom of the, the culture of the kingdom and making that dictate what happens in the culture of Rome. He starts by saying, we show no partiality as we serve Jesus, the Lord, Of what? Of glory. You want to talk about glory, Rome? Let's talk about the real Lord of glory. We show no partiality because our Lord, our King, is the true Lord of glory. Who was born in a manger. So he says, if a brother comes in with a ring and fine clothes, and another comes in with shabby clothes, and you say to the wealthy man, come sit here and the prestigious position, and you say to the poor man, sit here at my feet, he says, are you not showing favoritism, or prejudice? I was thinking this week, about, um, my shoe's untied, so I'm going to trip, um, that would be really entertaining for you guys, um, listen to me because I know this might, feel, might not feel exciting but I think this is really important for us to ponder um, so try to lean in for a second I was thinking about Jonathan Edwards who was one of the greatest if not the greatest thinker in America and George Whitfield, um, who was the greatest preacher said the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul we've ever seen George Whitfield, Edwards um, both participated to an extent in the slave trade so, Whitfield had an orphanage in Savannah that was kind of the work of his life. He was given a, uh, a plantation, and on one hand, he would preach to the slaves and tried to honor the slaves, but he kept them in slavery while he was trying to use the, the profit from slavery to care for orphans. It was like the ultimate definition of robbing Peter to pay Paul, um, and... Men of God, who didn't stop to think long enough about what the kingdom has to say about these matters, and rather just carried on in the cultural norm. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? It, it, today we can look at Whitfield and say, "How dare you own slaves?" We we would say that with all the authority in our chest. But in Whitfield's day, it was culturally normal. And so, because he had not allowed, and this is actually really fascinating, Wesley, you know, Wesley and Whitfield were friends, but then they fought with each other for years, uh, and then they were kind of friends again, and there's all this debate about who was right and wrong, and, um, Wesley was 10 years Whitfield's senior, but lived a lot longer than Whitfield. Whitfield died in his 50s. Wesley in his latter years became like a, a a strong proponent um, for the abolition of the slave trade. Note what I said in his latter years. And so what you see is this progression and Wesley's thinking of realizing that there was a cultural norm that was radically opposed to the cultural norm of the kingdom of heaven and that the church must choose the kingdom of heaven and resist what seems totally totally acceptable to society so to our children this is an easy one this is an easy one for us but to our children we may say abortion is totally normal to american society it's hideous to the kingdom of heaven therefore we resist it that one's easy but but we need to we need to take the time to ponder to really ponder are there things that we participate in socially? Are there ways that we live this life socially that may be offensive to the kingdom of heaven? And and for instance, this is just a maybe. This isn't a, uh, I'm not accusing, I'm not condemning. This is just a maybe. Um. The way that we spend our finances may be reprehensible to the kingdom of heaven right if if a, if um, if someone comes to us and with a need okay uh, a, an orphanage or a um, a widow or, or or maybe even a project like there's um I'm looking at Brother Bill back there, but brother Bill uh, a couple of years ago did a project with sewing machines am I right raise just ra- helping raise money for some people with sewing machines. Uh, overseas, some women who are trying to get on their feet, raise money. That's pretty common. If these kind of projects come to the church and we don't give, yet we save all of our money to buy, pick your thing. Some of you guys like your car. Some of you guys like your boats, whatever. You're hoarding all of your finances to buy things for your own pleasure. But that's normal in our culture, right? Normal. It's normal to save, save, save for the big boat at the end of life might not be appropriate for the kingdom. We must be willing, and I know that I'm stepping on toes, but I'm stepping lightly with an untied shoe. Remember that, okay? You could kick me down at any moment. I'm I'm not condemning, I'm just asking questions. We have to be willing to allow the culture of the kingdom to challenge and to win in a battle with what's normal around us. Are you guys hearing me? I was watching this week, um, my kids have been reading uh audio, they've been listening to the audio book of some of the Narnias, and so my my six-year-old wanted to watch um, the movies, and so we were watching The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, do you guys remember this one? It's, uh Prince Caspian on this Dawn Treader, they're going to try to find seven swords, and do you remember, it was the younger two, Lucy and Edmund, they get sucked into the picture with their obnoxious cousin- eustace you remember my daughter keeps saying about eustace i hate this i hate this actor and i kept trying to tell her that you're supposed to like that's the point everyone has an annoying cousin that's what i was trying to some of you guys are the annoying cousin i hate to break that to you but just statistically proven one of you at least a couple of you have to be that annoying cousin and do you remember in the movie um in the the book uh eustace tries to take some gold uh, from a dragon's lair and the gold's cursed and so then he becomes a dragon um and my daughter walked out of the room for that part of the movie. So I'm trying to explain to him, like, no, that's him. That's the boy. Um, and at the end of the movie, the book, the book does this part so much more justice than the movie. Um, when Eustace is trying to um, become a boy again, do you remember in the book, Aslan's clawing the, the scales from his, from his skin? So Aslan kind of claws off the dragon so that the boy is still there. And Lewis is trying to paint a picture of sanctification. Um and in the book he talks about it being painful, like awfully painful, but but satisfying at the same time. You know that like feeling of having glass stuck in your foot, and like it, it has got to come out. It hurts, but you're like, get that thing out of my foot, and there's relief when it comes out. And so he's trying to paint a picture of sanctification, in which the people of God have to allow Aslan Jesus, to kind of painfully strip us of of the things that we carry that are demonic in nature or worldly in nature, that all of your Christian life is allowing the calls of the Lion of Judah to rip away at the things in you that are not of God. It's painful. It's the only process we're called to. And so at, at times you could say, I don't, as, as an American Western prosperous Christian, I don't want to change too bad. The Lord of glory requires it of you. He requires you to put down the things that you carry that are worldly to embrace the kingdom of heaven, the culture of heaven. We must allow the culture of heaven to challenge what's happening culturally. Now, The way that James is going to argue here is he's going to move to a theological argument, which is beautiful. His first argument is theological, and he says this, Jesus, the Lord of glory, shows no partiality. Is there any advantage for the aristocrat, for the wealthy man, for the politician, or the Hollywood elite in in matters of salvation? Fundamentally, the scriptural answer would be no. You could be born to the Rockefellers or the Trumps, you could be the wealthiest individual in our nations ever known. When you come to the cross, you have no advantage, zero advantage, zilch. The scripture says that every single man and woman, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You could be rich as rich could be, and you are wicked. Poor as poor can be, wicked. A wonderful musician that the world praises, Wicked. The greatest actor the world's ever known. This gospel calls you wicked. There's only one way to come to the cross. On your face. There's, there's equal playing ground. And so James wants us to remember that Jesus shows no partiality, period. The honored of the world, the, the greatest athlete must Fall on their face before Jesus. All need atonement, forgiveness on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. All must come to repentance. And Jesus, God so loved the world that He gave Jesus's blood was not for a particular ethnic group. Jesus's blood did not. He didn't purchase a, just super, a particular socioeconomic class. The blood of Jesus was for the red, yellow, black, and white, for the Asian man, the Hispanic man, the poor man, the rich man, the disabled man, the dumb man. And if Jesus dies with his arms stretched wide, spilling holy blood for the poor African or Asian man, how dare you? treat those individuals as if they are less than you. You are not participating in the culture of the kingdom of heaven if you allow status to bear weight within the congregation of the saints. How dare you say, I want a a white 60-year-old successful businessman to be my pastor, rather than to say, I want God's hand If Jesus shows no partiality, the church must stand. You are required. Do you know there are requirements? You're required to stand with confidence and to look everyone in the face and say, here, your status means nothing. And from the theological conviction that God shows no partiality, we have to move to our theology must lead us to praxis or to practice. And when we move to, to practice, we consider that the vast majority of these Christians that James is writing to, they would be classified as the poor. So James is saying God chose the poor to, to declare his grace. Um, what what What's under this? What's under the hood here? When a rich man came into the congregation of the saints and he sat at the head of the table... The head is the position of authority, the head is the position of influence, and the poor man sitting at the ground, sitting on the ground, has no authority or influence. James is as much saying to the poor man, as much saying to the poor man, how dare you surrender your position of authority on the basis of your position in the world? And in other words, the elders in this church would have been poor. Poor. The deacons would have been poor. The pastors, the people leading the church, Jerusalem is known to to those who study the church as one of the poorest New Testament churches, period. They were very poor. The church leadership would have been poor. Don't you give your seat of authority to a man just because he walked in here in fine clothes? He, He doesn't get to override the structure of God's saints. His voice does not carry more weight than the pastor's. He can sit his butt down on the ground like everybody else. And so from here, when we start, what we're starting to press into is this idea that the the elitist in the world, not only do we not carry their culture, they don't get to come in and dictate how the church should or shouldn't operate. And so let me just be me for a second. Um, in our, in our last couple political, our election cycles, there have been some politicians, some, I'm not saying all, but there have been some politicians who have decided that they should tell the church what it should or shouldn't be preaching. On, on both sides. Okay, I'm not just talking about the liberal. I'm talking about some of the conservative are now telling the church what I should be talking about from behind my pulpit. And I want to say back to those politicians and any of those who are participating in that spirit, when you serve the saints of God, when you wash the feet of the saints care for the widows, when you spend your days and your nights in prayer and fasting with your face in this book, when you graduate to the position of leadership through service, then you can talk to me about what I should or shouldn't be preaching. Otherwise you can sit down and close your mouth like everybody else. And and guys, I, I, I don't just mean that about the liberal. I mean that about the conservative. There's, there's a movement that's in the, in the conservative party that's trying to tell pastors what we should or shouldn't be preaching. And let me tell you, what I should or shouldn't be preaching is what's written in this Bible. I actually don't care at all about what's going on your your little news platforms where you talk to each other on your on your boards. I don't care. All I can ask is one question. Spirit of God, what did you say in this text to the church? I, from a theological... Gosh, I'm mad now. You made me mad. From a doctrinal perspective, I believe in what's called the sufficiency of the Scripture. The sufficiency of the Scripture means this. The Bible works. It has worked for the church for 2,000 years. It will work for you today. I don't need to parrot what you heard on the news cycle. I need to exposit and expound for you what the Spirit wrote here. Don't talk to me about what I should or shouldn't say unless we're talking about this. Sufficiency of God's Word. This is what makes disciples. This is what builds the church up. There have been times in our community, in my time here, where a prestigious person, maybe a CEO or a really, you know, Fortune 500 leader has come into our church and has tried to throw their weight around the bit and said, you know what I would do, or you know how you could lead. And I want to say back with all the grace in my heart, I actually don't care how you would lead you want to start doing some hospital visits and you want to start doing some marriage counseling, you want to lay on the ground and pray, you want to meet us on Saturday nights for prayer sessions, you want to care for the flock, then we can talk about what you would do. Because this is not the culture of the world. I understand that you could probably walk in any company and have leadership, more power to you. But here you find leadership through sweat and faithfulness and integrity, and submission to God's elders. See, what what James is striking at here under the text is this. He, He is striking at the church and saying, how dare you give a man in nice clothes a position of authority just because he has standing in the world? He has no more standing before Christ. Those who lead the church must lead the church with character, with years of faithfulness, tending the flock, faithful to the word, teaching sound doctrine. You don't get to just slide in here because you were successful in the business world and jump to authority. So on one hand, he's saying, how dare that person think they should have authority? On the other hand, he's saying to the church, you better not let the influential of society come in and have louder voice than the saints of God. On one hand, it's a warning to me and to the elders that as elders, we have to stand in our positions of authority and resist anyone who would attempt to step over us on the basis of what happens in culture. James is then going to say, isn't it the rich who oppress you? Aren't the rich the ones who blaspheme the most holy name? Part of Roman society and climbing to the top would be um, participation in, uh, temple worship. And so for a Roman elitist, they would give money to the building of this temple or great sacrifices. So James is saying, okay, so you're gonna let the, you're gonna let the pagan idolaters come in and have the place of authority. Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the name of Jesus? Again, he's saying those who have the place of authority in God's church must be those who have for years resisted bowing the knee to anyone other than Jesus. There is no compromise here. There is no pinch of incense to that God or this God. Those who lead the church must say with confidence it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Period. James is not saying that someone of the uh, elite class in Rome could never be in a position of leadership in the church. James is not saying just because you're poor, you should be elevated to a position of leadership in the church. What James is saying is that there is equal ground. Faithful service. He he is saying to to some, maybe you were a plumber, maybe maybe you work in a trade, um, that our society has not valued the way that we should value. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I like plumbing, okay? I'd like to keep that. I really care about your marketing firm as much as I care about the plumber making the thing work. Um, if if you work a trade job, or maybe you, you know, maybe you're a teacher, or maybe you, have for years, um, just been really fulfilled and satisfied to serve people at a restaurant. Um, your status in society does not disqualify you from leadership in God's church. Um, so so there's this, there's emphasis here that that the simple, those who would be viewed as the simple in the world, are, are, are not any less called to lead, to teach, to shepherd. And so there, this, there is, again, we talked about this before, the sense in which James is saying to the rich of society, you don't get a pass, and he's saying to the poor of society, the, the, the simple, you, you're not excused. So you don't get to come to leadership just because of your, your birthrights. You don't get to sit down and not carry weight just because of your low standing in society. Get to work. You've got, you've got a call and authority. Then he, he turns and, and I want, I just, if I could just close here, I just want you guys to hear. He turns and he's going to repetitively call this prejudice that they're showing sin. He wants them to know that it's, that it's sin. And he says, fulfill what kind of law? you remember how he ca- described the law? The royal law. He's using this, this kingship language because, again, he's trying to emphasize the fact that we are a part of a kingdom with a Lord of glory, a King Jesus, who establishes culture and law and how we live. You fulfill the royal law by loving neighbor. He says the law says not to commit adultery. The law says not to murder if you break any part of the law, you're a transgressor. Therefore, if you don't murder and you don't commit adultery, make sure you're not filled with prejudice. Therefore, don't allow culture to dictate what you should or shouldn't live for. We went to the season of... um, I'm just, i just going to be honest. I don't really know how to do anything else. Um, Again, my email is Seth at ChristianRenewHHI.org. You can find me there. I'll respond rapidly. Um, It'll be awesome. We we went through this season and the last election cycle of um, what's called critical race theory coming to the surface. Critical race theory came from sociology departments, been there for years. Um, And... It got really messy on both sides, right? Like there were some who were screaming um, this idea that uh, any one of uh, any one of Caucasian ethnicity is an oppressor, and um, there were others on the other side screaming, "There's no such thing as racism in our society." A careful physician, a careful physician, um, if you you don't if the, if there's a tumor in the body, you don't pretend like the whole body. It's filled with tumors and cut everything up. Like, I don't want to go to the doctor because I have a brain tumor and find that he's chopped my toes off. Um, that ain't helpful. On the, so on one hand, the, there was one side saying, everyone's a racist, and, 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 and there's no such thing as, as any kind of equality in our nation. I, I don't think that's, that's wrong, blatantly wrong. On the other side, there were there were some resisting that who were saying, racism does not exist in our society at all. And it's like ignoring the tumor doesn't help either. Like there's definitely still. And so for me in this season of society telling me what to say, I, I was driving in the car with my kids, and I was listening. And I, I probably shouldn't have been listening to this where they could hear, but they could hear. I was listening to a lecture, um, and a man who was promoting CRT said, uh, he he said white people are demons. He said they're demons. Their oppressors are all demons, and my. My oldest, I think she was probably six or seven at the time, said, "Dad, we're not demons, are we?" I said, "No, baby, we're not demons." On the other hand, this week, have, you you guys know that I'm, I am. Uh, we're working on adopting. We're in the process of adopting um, two black boys, African American boys, and and one of my boys was, for lack of a better words, playing in the neighborhood this week, and uh, a neighbor, cussed him out. Um, the neighbor was in the in the wrong. Um, misunderstood what was happening. Um, I want you to know I was knocking on the door. We're going to have a conversation. And so on one hand, I'm saying, as an elder in the church, and someone who loves God's word, I want you to hear me say this. On one hand, I'm saying, my white babies are not oppressors. They're not demons. My two-year-old Spider-Man. Get that right, okay? <laughs> Spider-Man. He prefers Peter Parker, okay? <laughs> one hand, don't... Mm, my white kids are not oppressors. On the other hand, my, my black boys are not your doormat. And I'll knock you on your butt if you treat them like they are. You hear me? And, and I don't even think my elders would fire me for it, okay? Some of them might beat me to it. Um, so there's there's this concept that comes from the, the, the scriptures that, that says, all created in the image of God that I have to stand firm on. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, and if I could say this Nicely, we, I'm using the term we, over the last three years, many of us, we let culture dictate how we viewed race. And we fell prey to parties pushing us to choose one side or the other. And we gave up the careful hand of the physician that says everything ain't a tumor. But There's, there's still some tumors that we need to talk about. We, we chose sides and we let culture tell the church how the church should operate. And, and, and all we can do from here is say, shame on us. We've got to learn. We, we're, we're not going to be a church that says there's no such thing as racism. That's a, that's a, well, yes, there is clearly. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to be a, a church on the other hand who says, if you, if you're white, you're racist and your kids are oppressors and we ain't doing that either. Um, all of our children, every single one of them are precious. Some of them need to wipe their nose, okay? <laughs> but in this church, you guys hear me in this church they 're precious. our teenagers precious, hispanic, white black i don 't care they 're precious. What is our desire for them to be filled with the spirit that they live faithful to the word of god and 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 I will not allow this is all my pastoral authority, okay. I will not allow this church to be dictated by what happens in election cycles. This pulpit, as long as I'm breathing, and the elders agree with me being the person standing here, will not be dictated by what's happening. So you can send all of your political emails to Seth, too. He will love that. I'm pretty sure he doesn't check his email, so... (laughs) question, should the poor, half-blind, black man lead the greatest revival our nation has ever known? If he is a man of prayer and faithful to the word, absolutely. Why don't you stand to your feet? We'll get ready to close. So, Father, we ask that you would solidify this word in our hearts. Lord, in Jesus' name, in every aspect, God, we want the culture of King Jesus in this church. And, Lord, we ask that you would sanctify. Come on, we want you, Lord, to remove, to claw away everything from us. That's the culture of Rome. That's the culture of Babylon. May we serve you faithfully. May this house be marked by the anointing of the Spirit. And may this gospel be preached to every person. And we just say, we love you. You're our King. You're our Lord. You are truly the Lord of glory. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. And all the saints say, amen.